We are in a series of messages during this Advent season that is focusing on the, the Gospels. The Gospels are those books that occur at the beginning of the New Testament, which detail for us, chronicle for us, the life of Christ. And we are looking at these Gospels, these four witnesses to the life of Christ, to see what they witness to concerning the Christmas season. And that is pretty easy to do because a good many of these passages that we expect to hear during the Christmas season come to us from the Gospels. Matthew, for instance, reminds us that there was a vision given to Joseph and that there were wise men who came from the east. Luke tells us of Mary's vision and of stables and of shepherds. And the Gospel of John reminds us that the, the Jesus that we celebrate was the preexistent Word and became flesh and dwelt among us, and His light shone in the darkness around us. The Gospels talk to us about the life of Jesus and include for us details concerning His birth except for Mark. In fact, Mark is something of a Cliff Notes version of the life of Jesus. How many people know what Cliff Notes are? All right, several. They got me through college. Uh, I'm not going to lie about that. Um, it's, it's a very reduced uh, chronicle of Christ's life. In fact, it skips over huge chunks of his life and spends the bulk of its time, 38% of its time, focusing on the final week of Christ's life. And it says nothing at all about the birth of Christ, which might throw a, a kink in our plans in looking at these four Gospels and seeing what they witnessed to about Christmas were it not for the passage of Scripture that I just read to you, a passage of Scripture which details for us the baptism of Christ why is it that we can look at the baptism of Christ and celebrate something that the gospel is showing us about the nature of Christmas? Because of what they show us about something called the incarnation. The incarnation is what Christians, or at least it should be what Christians, celebrate at Christmas this time of year. What is the incarnation? Well, the Dutch-American theologian, Louis Burkhoff, who nerds like me have heard of, likely you have not, writes this definition of the incarnation in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. He wrote, the incarnation is the act whereby the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, without ceasing to be what He is, God the Son, took into union with Himself what He before that act did not possess, a human nature. And so he was and continues to be God and man and two distinct natures and one person forever. Now that's the doctrinal summary of what the incarnation is, but it's easy for us to just let these words wash over us and not get wrapped up in, in the profundity of what they say to us. These words are powerful in what they communicate and really almost beyond human capacity to grasp. They tell us that at Bethlehem, the nature of the eternally existent second person of the triune God changed forever. 
Without changing his eternal nature or his eternal personhood, he assumed, Jesus did, a human nature. So Jesus Christ was one person with both a divine and a human nature, without confusion and without separation, and with the full properties of both natures being preserved within him, and he continues in that fashion for eternity. Now, that is mind-blowing. When you stop and think that the eternally existent second person of the Trinity had a fundamental change of nature at the, at the Christmas event and that he continues with that human nature into eternity, you say, well, I, that doesn't seem like that big a deal to me. Oh, really? It doesn't seem like that big a deal that he continues into eternity? What this means is that the person Jesus fully God and fully man, exists somewhere in space-time right now. That means that, that, that when we think of his second coming, we are not thinking of some vapor coming out of the sky. But we are, are looking forward to the visible return of the bodily Jesus. That should blow our minds. And Mark's, of course, not the only one who talks to us about that truth through the baptism of Christ. But what I want us to see this morning through Mark's witness to the baptism of Christ is his Christmas witness, which is a witness to that incarnation, a witness to the wonder of Christmas. And he does that in those three verses in three different ways. First... He lets us in on the wonder of his identity. Now, Jesus is God's son. We know that. This text says that a voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son. And being referred to as a son of God is not something that is the exclusive domain of Christ in Scripture. As a matter of fact, the the phrase son of God is frequently used of the kings in the Old Testament. It is, in that sense, used to kind of define a role. Kings are, are being seen as the representative of God before the people. But, but when it is used here, when the voice speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son, it is doing more than just talking about a role that Jesus would fulfill. It's actually a term which is meant to communicate the unique nature and identity of this person. And the trigger word for us that lets us know that that is happening is the word beloved. In Mark's language, that would have landed on his ears and on the ears of his hearers more like the word one and only. Here's why we know that. In the translation of the Old Testament that Mark would have read from and used, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 16, the same word Mark uses here is used there. When God speaks to Abraham and says, now I know that you have held nothing back from me because you have not withheld your son, and then he says, your only son. That word only is the same word that is translated here as beloved. So beloved is meant to communicate a unique and special relationship with God the Father that is not enjoyed by anyone else. That's what 
this proclamation from heaven is meant to communicate. And the nature of that unique relationship is defined perhaps nowhere better than in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul, in discussing the special relationship that Jesus enjoys with the Father, says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Now, what does it mean when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? Well, the Hebrews were like most ancient cultures, which uh, ascribed special status to the firstborn. And it actually, that, that term firstborn came to communicate two different things. One's the obvious, that this one is the first person who was born. But it also came to communicate a privileged status because the first person born in the ancient world was the one who would inherit the family name and wealth uh, when the father passed away. So, metaphorically, this firstborn of creation word that Paul uses in Colossians chapter 1 is meant to communicate privileged status. So Paul, in writing this, is letting us know that Jesus is preeminent over all of creation, that creation exists completely underneath his authority. And Paul is going to go on to explain in Colossians chapter 1 that the reason for this preeminence is because Jesus both created all that exists and continues to sustain it by an outworking of his will. So the meaning is clear. When Paul speaks of Jesus being the firstborn of all creation in Colossians chapter 1, he is saying, in fact, that Jesus is God. And we carry that understanding with us back to the declaration in Mark chapter 1 when the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. He is not saying there that he is the first of many. He is saying that this is my one and only privileged son. And lets us know that in coming to us, God was enfleshed. Christ's identity, Christ's identity is that he is the enfleshed of God. Nicene Creed, which is an ancient creed which informs Orthodox Christianity, says that he was very God of God. So when we think about Christ, to borrow from C.S. Lewis and to borrow from Augustine before him, we are not to think of him as merely being a good man, a moral teacher. We are to understand and conceive of him as God. That is who Jesus is. And the wonder of that comes out in this baptism passage in Mark. The next thing that comes out to us that causes us to wonder is that it, the wonder of his intervention. Intervention. The phrase that is used in these three verses that we're considering this morning that triggers that idea of intervention is the phrase, being torn open. That's an exceptionally vivid way of saying that. In fact, there's a much more conventional word that Mark could have used if he just meant to say that the heavens were opened. Translated, focus closely, it means open. I mean, it's, it's just a really simple kind of thing. But here he uses a different word and says the heavens were torn open. He only uses that phrase one other time. In his gospel, it's in Mark chapter 15, when at the death of Christ, the veil, the curtain in the temple 
was torn in two so that there is no separation from the holy of holies where God was thought to be and the rest of the world. That separation has come down because at the death of Christ, we are to understand that the basis for meeting with God now is the life, work, and person of Jesus Christ. So when the heavens are torn open at the the, the baptism of Christ, it is the first hint that God is pulling back the veil of time and stepping forcefully into the human condition, intervening on our behalf. And this miraculous intervention had a miraculous effect. In fact, Paul writes about that miraculous effect in Galatians chapter 4 verse 4. When he, writing of the incarnation, says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He intervened so that we could take on his identity. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This intervention of Christ into the human condition where the heavens are torn open and God steps in is the means by which we are all able to achieve a relationship with God. The wonder of that never needs to be lost on us, that God came to us. Think of all of the other world religions. You have to go to God. You have to rise to God. Years ago when I was a much younger man and I didn't have to sit down because my back hurt, um, I, I, I used to illustrate this. I'd bring out like a really tall ladder on stage and I would, I would climb up it and sit at the top and illustrate how how religion says come to God, but quoting uh, from 1 Peter chapter 3, God comes to us for this reason. God uh, came to us so that he could, through the death of Christ, bring us to God. He used to illustrate it that way. I'll never do that again. But it was all meant to communicate a decisive intervention. The wonder of that never needs to be lost on us. Finally, this little three-verse description of his baptism causes us to think about and to wonder at his intentions, why he came in the first place. Jesus went to John to be baptized. Does that strike anybody as odd? Well, it should. It should strike you as odd because the nature of John's baptism is described for us in verse 5 of of Mark chapter 1. Speaking of John and his ministry, it says, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Jesus goes out with that throng and is baptized. Problem with that is that a core doctrine... Christian teaching is that Jesus was sinless. Over and over again in Scripture, we're told that Jesus is sinless. So why is he going out submitting to the baptism of John, which was plainly, we're told, for uh, the, the the confessing of sin? 
Well, you have to step back from the actual baptism and also think about where it's taking place. It is taking place in the wilderness. People were coming to him in the wilderness. In fact, John chapter, or Mark chapter 1 verse 4 says that John was baptizing in the wilderness. Now, that location's strategic. I mean, it's not that John said, you know what, I've got this thing I need to do. Where's the best place to do that? And he did a, you know, he, he scouted some sites and decided I'm just going to do it out here in the middle of nowhere. He's not doing that. There's a very specific reason that the baptism of John is taking place in the wilderness. Think with me about the events surrounding the Exodus. And if you can't conjure that up, think with me about the movie, The Ten Commandments. What happens? Well, the people are set free from slavery, and they go out to meet with God where? In the wilderness. They go out to meet with God in the wilderness. So the wilderness came to represent in Jewish thought the place where we became God's people. The problem is that in the wilderness itself, the people began to stray from God. They were almost immediately rebellious. They were almost immediately um, hypocritical about their professing that we worship the one true God in the actions that they took up. So the wilderness came to not just represent the place where we became God's people, it also came to represent the place where we were judged. The numerous accounts of judgment take place. Uh, the, the water, uh, the fiery judgment that takes place, the judgment of the serpent. So it came to represent both where we become God's people. So let's just think about that as grace. And it's also where we experience the judgment for our rebellion. And now we think about Jesus going out into that situation, knowing that John had strategically chosen the wilderness to remind people of their sin, judgment, but also that God was offering a second chance to repent of their sins and be his people. When Jesus comes and is baptized, he is meaning for us to understand that the means by which sins will be forgiven now is me. And the reason that I am able to forgive sin is because I have taken the judgment of your rebellion on myself. This is why Jesus went into the wilderness to be baptized, and therefore we see in his being baptized Christ acknowledging the judgment of God against sin and that his mission would be to bear that judgment himself and in bearing that judgment, he will become the means to the grace that God offers sinners, a chance to start anew. All right. So that's the wonder of all of this, the wonder of his identity. He was fully God and fully man. It was the, the wonder of his intervention that he left the glories of heaven to decisively intervene in human history. And the reason that he decisively intervened in human history is so that he could become the means by which we could be made right with God. And the reason he could do that is because he'd taken judgment on himself. You say, okay, well, that's a really good theology lesson, but we don't do stuff with theology. Let me say something to you. I can tell what your fundamental theology is by just watching you for a week. You can me as well. I mean, what you believe about God will work its way out in your life. And so there is a practical application of theology. So as we think about the incarnation, 
God becoming flesh, dwelling among us, the event that we celebrate at Christmas. Let's think practically about that with this question. How do you do Christmas? How do you do Christmas? We live in a world where there is this notion among evangelical Christians that there's some kind of war on Christmas, right? And so, to fight that war, we're going to turn the phrase Merry Christmas into a weapon of religious destruction. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas! You're not going to take that from me. Merry Christmas! And so we get all super anxious about about how we're somehow in an imaginary world going to lose the ability to say Merry Christmas. Now, I'll I'll give you this. Uh, The world doesn't get Christmas. They don't get what we've just talked about. But that's your fault. That's my fault. That's not Washington's fault. That's not a secular culture's fault. That's the fault of Christians whose celebration of this season will give any secularist's celebration of Christmas a run for its money. You say, well, can you prove it? Well, if I came to your house, how long would it take me to find your nativity? For many of us, it's an afterthought. Some of us, it's central. But for many of us, it's an afterthought. Just something that we set off to the side and say, oh yeah, that's the real reason for Christmas. And we look at it. And then we go and, you know, look at the tree. There's nothing wrong with trees. There's nothing wrong with holiday celebration. There is nothing fundamentally wrong with snowman socks. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It's okay, Rob. They're fantastic. Wait till you see next week. There's nothing wrong with the festive and fun celebration of Christmas. But far too many of us who proclaim to know the reason for Christmas give no visible indication whatsoever that we even care about it. That's how your theology works its way out. How do you, how do you celebrate Christmas? What is your messaging concerning Christmas? I mean, if I went around to your neighbors and, uh, and asked them what, what has been communicated to you by this Blue Valley neighbor here about Christmas, would they, would they even have a clue that you do it any differently at all than they do? Listen, there's nothing wrong with all of this. But the beating heartbeat of Christmas for a Christian needs to be the wondrous truth that the second person of a holy and triune God decisively intervened in history in pursuit of you and me. And we never need to let that truth, Christmas or not, 
get very far from our lips. The world is going to do everything they can to separate the baby from the cross. And if you, if you want to do something productive with the Christmas secularized celebration, do everything you can to bring those two things together. To say that the manger leads to the cross and for all of this, we sing hallelujah and we wonder. The, the practical expression of what to do with this message is Jesus. And there is, I believe, in any group of people that I speak to, week in and week out, a segment who have made Jesus a religion or a moral code, but who have never surrendered themselves to the God who enfleshed himself for our salvation and made their lives revolve completely around him. They may take up a pew in a church week in and week out, but they've never, ever given themselves to that Jesus. It may be this morning to apply this message and to move forward, you need to give yourself to that Jesus. Or it may be for the of those who have given their lives to Jesus, that what they need to do this morning is to say, you know what, I need to, I'm going to reevaluate my message and, and what I'm sharing. I'm not going to diminish the, the fun stuff that we get to celebrate, but I'm going to elevate the truth about Jesus during this time. And doing that, we will not just behold the wonder of the incarnation and of Christmas, we will be sharing the wonder of incarnation and Christmas. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please.